0: Harold Bra, no relation, <laughs> who uh, is going to talk to us today about his book, "Socialism with Chinese Characteristics." I'm not going to give a long introduction because I've already done that. Live now. Beg pardon? Going live now. Fantastic. So, going live now. Uh, welcome everyone. <laughs> We've got a packed hall today of uh, comrades from the CPGBML and friends who have come to listen to a short presentation about a rather uh, important book, we think, uh, written by Harpal Bra, um, uh, uh, our founding chairman, um, which is a book called Socialism with Chinese Characteristics. So I'll hold it up again. I hope you can see that. We'll put a link to it below. I'd encourage you all to get it and to study it. There have been many books about China um, that have come out recently, some from the left, some from the right, um, all with differing theories about what China is, what its rise represents. But they all agree that China has risen, and China's rise is a fact with which we must all contend. Whether you be right-wing from the Tory party, whether you're from the Labour party, whether you're from a country which is struggling to hew out its own path to development, or whether you're in the imperialist (laughs) heartland, um, everyone agrees that China has arrived on the scene. It's the largest economic power. Um, it's becoming one of the wealthiest countries. They still describe themselves, of course, as a middle-income country going on income per capita. But economically, militarily, China is, um, uh, uh, has become the workshop of the world uh, and is a force to be reckoned with. It's freed itself, of course, from its period of former colonial humiliation. This seems like um, a distant memory. But you see what a revolution is good for if you compare it with its neighbouring country, India, so-called world's largest democracy, where people struggle for their daily existence and rights and where development has lagged precisely because of the poverty of the vast mass of the population. Um, I'm not going to say a great deal more. Um, At that point, I would like to hand over to Harpal. We're all very much looking forward to what he has to say. Afterwards, there'll be a short question and answer session, but I think we won't have that live. So I'll hand over to Harpal, and if you let us know your thoughts on China. I'm going to exit the screen, and just uh, we'll focus the video in on you. I'm going to pass over the microphone just before you get going.
1: Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction by Dr. Brar, no relative. <laughs> um, before I start, Comrade, just as a matter of interest, can I ask how many people present in this room have read this book? Woo-hoo. Okay. All of you, many more than I thought you had. But uh, as the... Um, As a chairperson of this meeting, Comrade Brauer has um, explained to you, I never really wanted to write this book. And it was really not going to be a very fruitful exercise from a personal point of view. Um, I was reluctant to to write this book for two reasons. As I explained in the introduction to that book, preface to that book, one was simply for the reason of self-preservation. Because I knew what I, roughly knew what I was going to write. I'd been mulling over it for years and years. Uh, it wasn't going to please anybody, either people who call themselves Maoists or people who call themselves the Reformists. Um, and so really, as Voltaire, in his deathbed was asked, did he still not believe in God? And he said, now was not the time to make new enemies. <laughs> <laughs> and I, since I'm... Blessed with plenty of them, I didn't want to really make new enemies, so I didn't want to write this book. But as comrade chairperson has informed you, I was really forced to write because it was a decision of a party congress that I should write write on it. And everybody was asking me. I kept on delaying it, year after year, when are you going to do it? "Eh, It's coming through, coming through, you know, like the excuses one makes. in the end, when I was about to complete this book, the very same comrades got cold feet and they said perhaps it was not a good idea to write. Well, I was too far into the project to, to then then dro- drop it dead. So here it is for you, those who have read it, uh, you know the details of it. And those who haven't, you would really be able to find out what I wrote in it by re- reading it very carefully, uh, There's a quite a lot of information in it which I'm obviously not able to present in this um, short presentation but I'll do my best. I've tried to avoid all quotations in my presentation except one which I'll give you at the very um, b- beginning and that quotation is, is, is really, if you like, my, my guiding light for this book. Um, it's a quotation from Stalin. It comes from his report to the 18th Party Congress um, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. He says, The chief endeavor of the bourgeoisie is to kill in the working class faith in its own strength, faith in the possibility and inevitability of its victory, and thus to perpetuate capitalist slavery. You know, One of the very important roles that the bourgeoisie plays is to sow doubt in the minds of people as to whether socialism is a practical proposition and if it by accident comes into being, whether it can ever be successful. And ever since the Soviet Union was born, it has been the endeavour of the bourgeoisie to kill in the working class the faith and hope in, its, in the possibility and the inevitability of its, its, of its victory. And they played on many le- levels, economic, political, ideological. And the propaganda of the bourgeoisie has been from the crudest of the type that you will see in the Sun newspaper, to the most sophisticated that you'll find in bourgeois academic public publications, to malign socialism. And economic theory has played a very important part in it. And that theory is that without the market, it's not possible to have an efficiently functioning economy because there's no calculation. You know, without the prices being determined by the market, you do not find out what needs to be produced. Well, as we know under capitalism, there is planning, but it's planning by the market. It's only when you brought your wares that you produced into the market that you find out whether you produce too much, in which case you go bankrupt, or you produce too little, in which case you rush around trying to find labourers, whether they are from this country or from a foreign country, or whether they've got to be brought as slaves, it doesn't really matter. You know, capital will lay its hands on labour whenever it, it, it needs it. And so that is how capitalist economies function. That's why they go through periods of boom and bust. Uh, Everybody is producing on his private account. He doesn't consult with others what has to be produced. He doesn't know what the market will bear. And therefore, it's only when the products are brought to the market that he finds out whether he can sell or not. And when he can't sell, then, of course, everything dries up. Credit dries up, production ceases, workers are... uh, made unemployed and there's misery all around. Some capitalists go bust but of course each occasion of a crisis is for some capitalists grow even bigger and they grow bigger still and so it goes through a crisis of boom and bust. Every period of boom is followed by a crisis of overproduction. That's capitalist production. Prior to capitalism People did starve. People did go without housing. People did go without clothing. But that was because there were not enough houses. There wasn't enough food. There wasn't enough clothing and all the rest of it. Capitalism is the first system of production where people starve because they produce too much. It's been produced for the market. There's food lying in the warehouses. And on the other hand, people are dying in the street because they cannot afford to buy buy that food. Under capitalism, Production is not for need and therefore if goods are produced, they've got to be sold. You can only, you're only an effective buyer if you have got money in your pocket and if you haven't, well, you cannot buy it. And that's what leads to crisis of overproduction. Ever since the first crisis erupted, crisis of overproduction erupted in 1825, there have been crises of overproduction every eight to ten years except in the last 20 years it's been a period of continuous crisis. You know, they tell you that there's a recovery but there isn't really re- recovery and very often it's a recovery without producing new jobs because each crisis becomes an occasion for increasing automation, for increasing the productivity of labour so you produce the same amount of goods with fewer and fewer people. But the problem with that is these goods have to be sold and the ultimate market are the ordinary people, and if you keep impoverishing them, relatively speaking, the result is that you won't be able to sell. So, capitalism has been able to constantly say that without the market, the economy does not function. In fact, theoretical reasoning, theoretical thought, and practice of the Soviet Union and other socialist countries shows that the planned socialist economy works extremely well. When it has been applied properly, it has achieved tremendous and remarkable results. And it's not for nothing that socialism, contrary to Marx's predictions, had come in countries where relatively less developed than the countries where Marx and Engels thought it would come first. That's another subject which we can discuss another time. But the fact of the matter is these countries, in a matter of 30, 40 years, closed the gap with the advanced countries that... The advanced countries in their own development took 100, 150 years, years to achieve. Such has been, have been the remarkable achievements of, of socialism. And the second reason that the bourgeois ideologues say socialism doesn't work is there's no incentive for anybody to produce under socialism because they think the only incentive is somebody should be able to make a fast buck out of exploitation of the labour power of others and this gives them tremendous incentive. Yes, I'm sure it gives a tremendous incentive to the capitalist owners of the means of production to to produce, because you say, you know, my God, the money keeps rolling in. But for the ordinary masses, there is no incentive. The more efficiently they produce, what are they doing? They are contracting for their own unemployment. If five person's work is done by three persons, then the capitalist doesn't say the rest of you can rest or you can take your turns and your hours of labour are reduced as happens under socialism. No, you are unemployed and that's it. So the more you work, the more efficient you are, the better worker you are, the biggest enemy of yourself you are. So if the workers don't work and their capitalist class is not able to compete with others, they go down. If on the other hand they work very fast, they go down anyway. So one way or the other, the workers under capitalism are really doomed and they have to find a way out. And the second reason this is, for the workers there's no incentive because if there's no threat of unemployment and starvation, they won't come to work, right? On the contrary, under socialism, they come to work and they actually are prepared to give their lives because they are building a future of their own their grandchildren's future, their great-grandchildren's future. What better incentive than that with each passing year, you see new facilities come up for the working class, better schools, better better healthcare centres, better housing, better cultural facilities, better literacy, better numeracy. All that is a tremendous advancement over what happens under the conditions of capitalism. Having given these few words by way of introduction uh, I, I would like to say to you that this book of mine um, is, is, is um, basically designed to show a number of things. First of all, market is incompatible with socialism. The purpose of socialism is to get rid of the market. It doesn't get rid ridden in a mo- moment if you like particularly if socialism comes to backward countries. Even when industry, urban industry has been socialized and become state property, there is the huge question of a large peasantry. They farm on their plots of land and therefore they produce for the market. Commodity production cannot be got rid of. The market cannot be got rid of straight away. It's only through a long period of time that first of all you get individual peasants to cooperate with each other and bring cooperative fo- farming. The fo- you know There are many kinds of cooperation, cooperation for marketing, cooperation for buying, cooperation for selling, and also cooperation for production. That's the highest type of cooperative production. And usually it's known as collectivization of agriculture, if you like, which is what the Soviet Union did in between 1928 and 1932 and with remarkable success. Whatever the bourgeois slanders against Soviet agriculture, it was for its time the most advanced agriculture. It could have grain factories over 100,000 hectares of land with no capitalist, not even the United States can do it because there are other farmers next to you and they have to be bought out or something, some arrangement has to be got with them. You cannot work your tractors, your combined harvesters, your uh, farm machinery over such a last tract as can be done under the condition, condition, conditions of, 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 of so, so socialism. So, socialism is able to achieve all these these things. So, what I'm trying to say, and this is the thrust of my book, that market is incompatible with socialism. It's the job of socialism will get rid of the market instead of being ashamed to say that we want to get rid of the market we should be proud to say that we are in the forefront of people who wait for the day when the market will no longer longer be there nowhere has the market come to an end because nowhere has socialism achieved the complete state ownership of every kind of means of production it was able to achieve an industry but agriculture continued to be collectivized which means It was obviously, uh, uh, although the means of production, that's the land, the tractors, uh, the machine and tractor stations and machinery, belonged to the state, the produce belonged to the farmers. And at that time, the farmers were not prepared to have any other relationship with industry than through the market. So the market continued. It was the backwardness of the countries in which socialism came which actually made for the continuation of the market for such a period of time as it actually actually did. But in the end, as Stalin said in his economic problems of socialism in the USSR, that the Soviet Union must look forward to the day when there would be state ownership of the whole of industry, so planning can actually encompass not only urban industry, but it can also bring within its ambit the agricultural se- sector as well. When, when when agriculture would obviously uh, be, become just like industry when workers who are working there would be working if you like for the state and the produce that they will produce will belong to the state and the state will disp- dispose of that that, that, that that production. The second point that I try to, to make, make, make in this book is that Soviet Union collapsed, not because of the lack of the market but because by introducing market reforms since the death of Stalin, they slowly but surely undermined the socialist system of production. By the Soviet time the Soviet Union collapsed, close to half of Soviet production was in hand of hands of private uh, capitalists. Since the Soviet revisionists continued to maintain that they were not only socialists but were going full steam ahead towards building the higher stage, stage of communism. They had to hide the fact that they were instituting market reforms which were actually encroaching upon the socialist, socialist, socialist economy. So heck of a lot of Soviet private production um, was illegal and there were illegal factories employing thousands of workers and they could only carry on because of the collaboration between high officials in the Communist Party, the government, and the private illegal entre- entrepreneurs, if you, if, if you like, if you like. Whereas the Chinese have gone about it quite openly. They've introduced the market, they've joined the world market, and they were able, therefore, to, to not be in a position to hide the fact, I mean, yes, of course, in the initial, it was all said that there's a little bit of adjustment through the market, there's a little bit of adjustment through, through planning. But eventually it becomes very clear within 10 years of the market reforms being instituted from 1978 on, uh, onwards that China was on the trajectory to introduce market on an increasing scale. So Chinese market is now quite fully developed. Now, before the market could develop, of course, a number of things had to be done. But before I come to this, because I, I have a chapter in this book which actually connects the present day to the Chinese struggle for liberation. And I make references to the fact that ever since China began to be colonized by Western powers, principally by Britain, but also by America, France, Germany, and even minor powers like, like Denmark, Chinese people struggled for their independence. They didn't simply sit as victims of of, of imperialism. They they struggled against it. They struggled against their own corrupt uh, dynasty, uh, the monarchy, and they struggled against, of course, foreign imperialists. And the landmarks in that struggle are the Taiping Rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion, and May the Fourth Movement, which happened in the aftermath of the First World War and the Versailles uh, tr- Treaty. Because of the Versailles Treaty, China was on the winning side. It was one of the allied powers. And yet, the, uh, the powers that were at the negotiating table in Versailles granted former uh, German colonies, not to China back, but actually g- 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 gave them to, Ju- to Japan. And this led to a tremendous amount of upsurge of the the movement. In the end, the Japanese returned these things, uh, these colonies to China. But the present-day movement in China, of course, dates from May the Fourth Movement. And then came, in the middle of that war, the most gigantic event in world history, what has been the defining feature of our world, notwithstanding the reverses suffered by socialism, The October Revolution of 1917 is a landmark which actually divides the world prior to October 1917 and post-1917. Never will the world be the same after 1917. And Mao Zedong says uh, in one of his writings that before 1917, the Chinese wanted to learn from the West. And they tried their best to learn from the West, West, they wanted the West to be its teachers, but each time they tried to learn, they were beaten by the teachers. Instead of helping China to become a modern capitalist democracy, if you like, they actually wanted to subjugate China and keep it backward. And in order to achieve that, they of course made, the imperialists made a pact with the feudal aristocracy in China, and that was the backbone of their rule alliance between imperialism, capitalism, and, of course, feudalism. But the October Revolution did something different. It brought socialism to China. The salvos of the October Revolution brought socialism to China. And Mao Zedong says that before 1917 October Revolution, we Russians knew nothing about socialism. We not only did not know anything about Lenin and Stalin, we didn't even know about... Marx and Engels, but, of course, in the aftermath of the October Revolution, Chinese Communist Party was established in July 1921, and it's 100 years since since that happened. And these 100 years have been remarkable years of tremendous struggle and tremendous victories by the Chinese Revolution and by the Chinese Communists. The, the struggle of the Chinese people to achieve liberation and they had to achieve liberation not only against foreign colonialism, you know, which had established its domination since the end of the first opium war of 1839 to 42 which of course ceded that great place of democracy, Hong Kong to Britain. And all it was all done in the name of free trade. Why were the Chinese invaded? Because the Chinese won't allow opium to be traded in China to make the Chinese people opium addicts. Now, there is a law in in, in history that people who actually forge these instruments of oppression, they will work against them. There's such a prevalence of drug addiction in imperialist countries and it can be traced all the way back to Britain and other countries' opium trading um, in, in, in China. They made the Chinese nation become opium addicts and of course in the process they brought opium to their own, own, own country, countries as well. So the Chinese struggled and they spent from 1929, 21, to 1949 struggling for their liberation, both against the internal reactionaries and against foreign capitalism. The Chinese Communist Party Um, uh, was formed in 21. But before that, there had been a progressive movement formed by Dr. Sun Yat-sen. He is considered to be the founder of modern China. And he formed the Nationalist Party, the KMT, Kuomintang. And Kuomintang had three basic principles, progressive principles. Alliance with the Communists, that is from 1921 onwards. Alliance with the Soviet Union and helping the workers and peasants. yat Sen died, I believe in 1925, and his position was taken by Chiang Kai Shek. And the Comintang and the communists were in alliance. The communists held important positions in the Komintang army, as well as in the Comintang government, and as well as in the party. And they launched the Northern expedition to free China from a warlordism. It was so successful that it sent alarm bells ringing within the reactionary camp in China, as well as imperialism. In fact, it's very success made for the fact that the alliance between the communists and the Kuomintang would not last very long because the big officials and officers in the Komintang army were also connected with landlord families. So soon after, the liberation of shanghai and the liberation of north china from the warlords chiang kai sheik committed his great betrayal and launched an extermination campaign against the communist party tens of thousands of communists were slaughtered in that forcing the communists to give up the cities and go and establish a base in southern china and the slaughter of the communists and the extermination campaign by the kmt led Mao Zedong to two conclusions. One, without a people's army, the people have nothing. And secondly, that the political power grows from the barrel of a gun. These were the two lessons that the Chinese were never to forget. And within a few months after that, they established the People's Liberation Army. Since then, the history of the Communist Party of China and the history of the People's Liberation Army have been intertwined there together. The Chinese Communist Party led the People's Liberation Army. The People's Liberation Army was the army of the Chinese Communist Party. And the Ch- Chinese Communist Party had control over the gun, not gun over the Chinese Communist Party. And the, Ch- and the People's Liberation Army fought because it understood what the aims of its fight were. They, it's like Cromwell. He said, my soldier fights because he knows what he's fighting for. Okay? And the People's Liberation Army soldiers knew exactly what they were fighting for. And then after they established the base, Chiang Kai-shek launched his second extermination campaign forcing the Communists to give up their base in South China and march 6,000 miles away to the north of China to establish a base in Yan'an. And there they faced, at least from 1931, not only extermination campaigns by Chiang Kai-shek, but also by the Japanese who started invading invading China. And from the moment that the Japanese started invading China, the slogan of the Communist Party was to have unity in China so that they could together resist against Japanese aggression. Chiang Kai-shek would not agree to, until an incident known as the Xi'an Incident when one of his, some of his own generals arrested Chiang Kai-shek in the city of Xi'an, uh, Xian which is in the, in the middle of China, and called the representatives of the Communist Party, and it was chuan lai who went there on behalf of the CPC, and forced Chiang Kai-shek to sign an agreement that he'll stop his campaign against the Communists, but start fighting against the Japanese. So that is when the resistance uh, was, if you like, united. But even then, Chiang Kai-shek could not help launching campaigns against the communists. He did everything possible to suppress them without any great success. The communist message resonated with the people of China because the people of China was, were thirsting to fight against foreign aggression as well as to free themselves from feudal, feudal ex- exploitation. And it's forgotten, everybody remembers and should remember Quite rightly remember that the Soviet Union lost 27 million people in the fight against fascism during the Second World War. But the Chinese lost 35 million fighting against, against the Japanese and against their own reactionaries. It's a tremendous sacrifice to which the Chinese Revolution owes its success. And finally in 1949, October the 1st, the Chinese People's Liberation Army marched into Beijing. And Mao Zedong was able to declare from the rostrum of Tiananmen Square that Chinese people have stood up. That <laughs> no one how to interfere in China's ex- internal, internal affairs. And it happened in the same week that the Soviet Union exploded her first atomic weapon thus breaking the monopoly and hegemony of US imperialism which was based on the possession of nuclear weapons. A Lot of people will tell you that nuclear weapons by other powers are destabilizing. On the contrary, what has prevented a major war between the major powers since the Second World War was the possession of these nuclear weapons by socialist countries and not by imperialism. When imperialism was the only power to have these weapons, they were used. There was no justification for the use of nuclear weapons against Japan. A, because Japan was ready to surrender anyway. B, it could have been defeated by ordinary means within six months without subjecting the civilian Japanese population to the Holocaust, which it was through the use of nuclear weapons. The Chinese Communist Party had had the sense at that time to condemn the use of nuclear weapons, although they hated Japan, because Japanese had committed tremendous atrocities against Chinese people. They didn't say, good, they deserve it, no. They said, no, these weapons should not be used. And of course, the Soviet Union opposed it. The weapons were used, basically, A, to make sure that Japan did not get liberation at the hands of the Soviet Union, because under the agreement signed between the Soviet Union, uh, Britain, and and, and, and America, the Soviet Union, entered the war in August 19, um, 1945, at the beginning, uh, no, just, just a few days, a couple of weeks before that, entered the war, and they liberated Manchuria within a matter of, of days. And they were obviously going to go and liberate Japan. But the Americans did not want China to have a hand in the liberation of, uh, of Japan, as it had a tremendous hand in the liberation of of uh, and central and 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 uh, europe and, and and germany from from nazism secondly it was actually a warning to the soviet union that if she did not behave the same will happen to her as had happened to japan so the wa- the weapon was used basically to intimidate the rest of the world and to make sure that america had hegemony over Japan, which was the most developed country in, 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 in Asia, Asia at the time. So, the, the Chinese achieved liberation, and after liberation, they made a number of achievements. The Chinese revolution can be credited with, first of all, putting an end to imperialist ex- expert exploitation, and getting rid of imperialist list powers for good. Secondly, to get rid of feudal exploitation. The land was confiscated from the peasantry and made over to the, to, to, to the peasantry. Thirdly, they got rid of drug addiction within a matter of three four years, got rid of the banditry, got rid of all the, the troublemakers on behalf of the common Kuomintang. Fourthly, they, reuni- they reunified China. Apart from Taiwan, China was reunified. Taiwan continues to be occupied basically by U.S. US imperialism. It's not an independent, sovereign place. It is something which is occupied by, by U.S. imperialism. And Chinese are determined to free it and may they succeed in it sooner than later. And then the Chinese collectivized agriculture brought the Chinese countryside to a modern civilized state of existence. And they laid the basis for economic development through not only collectivization, but also industrialization through planned economic uh, uh, institutions. And made tremendous progress People will tell you that China owes all its pr- progress to the market. This is a total lie. In fact, the first five year plan of 1952 to 57 was so successful that it laid the basis for further subsequent industrial and agricultural de- development in China. Even bourgeois writers who basically are reactionary in their outlook or are petty bourgeois, like around wi- Will Hutton and Maurice Meisner will tell you that the industrial base of China was built during the period of economic development that was carried on from 1949 to 1978. That is when the industrial base was built. And Will Hatton and Maurice Meisner say that without that development, there would be nothing for the reformers to reform. There would be no industry, there would be no properly collectivized agriculture, there would be nothing nothing to to reform. So China made tremendous progress. And what is more, the economic uh, progress of GDP was well over 9% every year, right up to 1978. Apart from the outlier years of 1960, 61, and 62, when China suffered from tremendous natural disasters, in some areas severe flooding, in other areas severe drought. Apart from those three years, China's economic um, uh, increase in in, in GDP was over, over 9%. What is more, during those years, China abolished illiteracy. Life expectancy, this even reactionaries admit, went from 35 years to 65 years. This literally means that there was an increment of life expectancy for every single one of the years between 1949 and 1978. Well, that is a remarkable, remarkable achievement for a country which was totally benighted, which had hardly any industry, hardly any, any, any working class where feudalism prevailed and imperialism ruled, ruled, ruled the roost. And they created cultural institutions. They built their def- defenses. And what's more, soon after the People's Liberation of China had been established, of course, China entered the Korean War on behalf of Korea to aid Korea, to resist US aggression, and to defend china and it was successful it was the fu- it was the first time that us imperialism and the combined forces of imperialism had suffered a defeat at the hands of a relatively backward country and that is the strength of the chinese revolution that's the strength of the people's liberation army which paid a heavy price for going there but nevertheless it did, did, the, did, the, did the job. It was a time when the socialist camp read from the same hymn sheet, sang from the same, same hymn sheet. The Soviet Union supplied some sophisticated weaponry. The Chinese people supplied man, manpower. And it was known to the Americans that the Soviet Union, I mean China had no Air Force at that time, But nevertheless, there were Chinese planes flying in the Korean War, fighter planes. And it was known to Truman that these were Soviet planes. And they hid it from American public because if the American public had known, they would have wanted probably a war against the Soviet Union. But Truman also understood Soviet Union was a hard nut to crack. It would be very difficult to win a war against the Soviet Union. Apart from the fact that this was a time when the Soviet Union was treated with a tremendous amount of warmth and respect in the because it was the main force that defeated fascism in, in, in Europe. A war, a war against, against, against the Soviet Union would have been a very dangerous, dangerous thing to do. And therefore, the um, Chinese were able to achieve that. And after that had been done, the Chinese got on with construction. And the first five-year plan was adopted by Chinese planners with the full cooperation and support of the Soviet economic planners. And it has, therefore, tremendous results. And the the Soviets um, brought in a lot of not just blueprints and drawings for conducting, conducting economic planning, but brought a lot of advisors, a lot of technicians, and also, of course, they donated a lot of plants to the People's Republic of China. And after reporting on the successes of the first Chinese economic plan, uh, the uh, chief of central planning in China made the statement, that it was about the most generous help given by any foreign country to another country, and it was expressive of the noble internationalism of the proletariat of China, China, and such was the relationship. And things only started going down with the coming to power of Christovite revisionists in the Soviet Union, who actually have caused such damage to socialism. That we continue to suffer from that e- even today. The Soviet revisionists introduced market reforms and tried to persuade everybody else. This was the only way to develop an economy. That planning was something which was really um, which constrained personal initiative. It prevented the development of productive forces. And what happens in 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 China is. A struggle that took place within the Communist Party of China over the course to take. The reformists in China, even in the time of Mao Zedong, wanted to institute the same kind of reforms, market reforms. And Mao Zedong stood against that. In the end, the matter could not be sorted out amicably and in a friendly way and through discussion. And that leads, if you like, to the Cultural Revolution. The main slogan of the Cultural Revolution launched by Mao Zedong. And funnily enough, he was able to get the um, sanction of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China to launch Cultural Revolution. His slogan was that although the economic base in China had been transformed, the superstructure had not been. The superstructure, the party, the government and everything else was tremendously under the influence of revisionists. And they actually if you like, were in charge of the things, and they, they, were, they were the enemy, and they had to be got rid of. And not being able to get the party to get rid of them, he launched the Cultural Revolution. I mobilized the masses to get rid of them. That was the main thrust and main slogan of the Cultural Revolution. It was a period that lasted ten years, but the first two, three years were the most turbulent and, and, and dif- difficult ones. The Cultural Revolution is very difficult to disentangle because the party was in the hands of the reformists, they controlled every area of the Communist Party's branches, the government and the administration, etc and although but that does not mean Mao was powerless. he was the chief theoretician of the Communist Party of China he had been the leader of the liberation struggle for you know, ever since 1931. So he had tremendous amount of prestige and he was able to mobilize a lot of masses. But in the the end, although he was able to prevent the second edition of reforms being put into place in, in, in China, after his death, things began to change. And in fact, one of the chief harms that comes to the communist movement in china is that they have accepted that market is the way to develop an economy and that really undermines if you like marxian economic theory without marxian economic theory marxism is nothing because if we accept that market is the only way to develop then there's no need for a socialist revolution the market is there well develop whatever you can through the through the market but we know market does not lead anywhere except to crisis over production. And by doing that, because the Chinese Communist Party is such a large party, it has such influence over other other people, and because even its reforms have made made progress, everybody thinks that's, that's the way to do it. And when we try and go and propagate Marxist theory, people tell us, no, no, it doesn't work. The Soviet Union uh, knew it didn't work, and the Chinese know it doesn't doesn't work. That is my chief complaint against the reforms, apart from other things that we'll we'll come to. So the Chinese were able to do that, but before they could do that, they had to do something very important. They had to downgrade Mao Zedong. During the Cultural Revolution, such was the prestige of Mao Zedong that each side used Mao Zedong's name. People who were supporting Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution, of course, were supporters. Of the, of, the, of the cultural revolution and acted in the name of Mausatung. But those who opposed it also used the name of Mausatung because nothing you could do there without invoking the name of, name, name of Mausatung. So they did that and there is such a um, turmoil. Actually you have difficulty knowing which side is on the side of the Mausatung and which side is opposed to it because everybody used the name of Mositam. And the more anti they were against Mao, the more extreme their slogans, because that, that's the way the, the the whole thing worked. After two, three years, uh, things had gone out of control to such an extent that Mao had to ask the People's Liberation Army to intervene and restore order. So a lot of these extremists were were got, got rid of. But one thing that is propagated all over the place is, during the time of Cultural Revolution, all production ceased and China suffered tremendous losses. This is not true. You can see from the report of Chuan Lai to the National People's Congress in, in, in 1975, where he says production not only did not cease, but actually he gives figures as to how in every single area of every single indices of production went high during the, during the, the, cult, the cult, cultural, cultural rev, revolution. And so when, when the reformers came to power, they had to downgrade this and bring down Mao Zedong. because without bringing down Mao Zedong, they couldn't get on with the job of reforms. Just as the Christovites could not get down to their work, without bringing down, if you like, um, Stalin. They couldn't say anything against Lenin. That would have been a very dangerous thing to do. But you know the old um, German saying, I hit the sack but the blows are intended for the ass. They were hitting against Stalin but the ultimate aim was socialism and Leninism. Likewise in China, they didn't attack Mao Zedong, they were much more clever. Mao Zedong was still kept as an as icon. They said Mao Zedong was manipulated by the so-called Gang of Four. And Gang of Four was the one who actually were made the target of the venomous attacks. You know, they included Mao's Zedong and they included three, three other people, like Yao and Yuan and, and, and Hong, 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 Hong Wen, etc. And they conducted this propaganda that they, these people had brought China to this so, so, sorry, sorry pass. And once they had actually achieved control of it um, after the death of Mao Zedong, they very soon arrested the Gang of Four and a few months later put them on trial. My own view is, although the Gang of tra- Four were being tried, the real person on trial was the unnamed one, that was Mao Zedong. It was his policies that the Gang of Four, the so-called Gang of Four, were, were carrying out and not, 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 their, not their own. And after the Gang of Four were, were tried and convicted, of course, the reformists were free then to launch their reform program. And the reforms, of course, the liberalization of prices brought tremendous inflation and some of these had to be, had to be withdrawn. But in the end, instead of making the economy better, the economy was messed up. And it resulted in such turmoil that it led to dissatisfaction on the part of the working class. And once the working class was dissatisfied, then various elements from the petty bourgeoisie as well as imperialism got onto exploiting it. And that leads to your Tiananmen incident of 1989, and the Tiananmen incident was an attempt by the bourgeoisie with the help of imperialism to get rid of the Chinese socialist system. On that occasion, Deng Xiaoping, with the help of the army, suppressed that movement. Now, you can have an ambivalent attitude towards it, The Deng Xiaoping is the architect of bringing the situation to such a pass, and he's suppressing. But in the end, you have to say on balance, it was right to suppress that counter-revolutionary movement. It was not a bad thing, even if it was being done, done by, by, by Deng Xiaoping. Once that had been suppressed, for three, four years, all reforms were put on hold. They were not carried on until Deng Xiaoping went on his southern tour, notorious southern tour of 1992, where he tours China uh, in a special bus south of China, and doesn't really put forward any particular theory. Just makes statements, sloganizing, you know, that we want to um, make people well off. Of course, reforms will make some people richer than others. Some will get there first and others will get later. And of course, the fact that after Mao Zedong and Chuen Lai, he was probably, and, and Leo Shaoji, he was probably the most important person. Leo Shachi had di- di- died by that, by, by that time. And of course, uh, they, they launched, launched the reforms. And the reforms, of course, open the market. And the first thing they do is de-collectivize agriculture. In my view, it's the most retrograde step to de-collectivize agriculture. And the Soviet Union quite rightly considered collectivization of agriculture in the Soviet Union to be an event at least as important as the October Revolution in its ramifications and, its, and in its economic effect. It's the most difficult thing to bring small peasants to cooperate with each other and start actually operating agriculture on a collective basis the chinese had easy time because the chinese revolution had been a very protracted one over a number of years the chinese communist party had mobilized the peasantry and the peasantry believed in it even will Hutton says that in collectivization of agriculture the chinese pe- peasantry by and large supported the collectivization peasants joined the cooperative movement and the cooperative did tremendous amount of good work in, in, in China. The cooperatives and the communes ran the health system, the education system, the um, development of small industry. number of things were done by the communes which lifted China onto a completely new plane. Women were given proper respect. Mao Zedong famously said, women hold half the sky. Women in China were very badly treated. It's well known that women had to have their feet bound because no woman would be seen with big feet. Big feet was a sign of being from an inferior background. So they had their feet bound and Chinese put an end to that that practice. Chinese put an end to all the superstitions that 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 had Bedeviled the Chinese people over, over over a millennia. So this 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 this, this, this was an ach- achievement of collectivization, and that's done away with. Every bourgeois applauded de They said it has released the productive forces from the constraints of planning, and now agricultural production would increase. For two three years, the agricultural production actually did increase, but it did increase on the basis of the infrastructure that had built, been built during the period of collectivization and, and communization of agriculture. And soon after that, agriculture began to deteriorate because nobody had the money. The, collect, the individual farmers owning two and a half to three hectares did not have the resources to replenish machinery, the tractors or anything. What tractors can you put on on two and a half hectares of land? It's not possible to have application of modern science and machinery to small plots of land. You need big plots whether they are owned privately or whether they are owned, 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 owned by the farmers collectively. So agriculture in China went very backward. And people will tell you that it didn't, but it did. And even now, The bourgeois writers are writing that small agriculture cannot be the basis of modern productive agriculture. Well, thank you very much for telling us. We've been telling you for ever since Soviet collectivization, that collectivization is the way out of poverty, ignorance into culture and prosperity. And now you're telling us that small agriculture does not become the basis of highly productive agriculture. So, you look all over the world, small agriculture is not a way forward. In America, there is collectivization of a kind. The land had been cornered cornered by 1% of the population. 1% of the population owns almost all the land in America. There's hardly any small peasantry. And so you have collectivization. Under socialism you have collectivization where by willingly the peasantry cooperate with each other and produce together. So there's no way out of big agriculture. It's up to you to decide whether you want collectivization of the Soviet and early Chinese type or whether you want collectivization of the American or other capitalist countries. So privatizing, if you like, agriculture was not a very clever idea. Then, of course, once agriculture had been uh, collectivized, the reformists in China got on with, if you like, privatization of industry. I've charted in my book the whole course of this, this privatization. I've given facts and figures which is not possible for me to produce in this particular pre- presentation. and. Basically, um, I mean, no nobody actually is agreed on how much of Chinese industry is privately owned and how much it is state owned, and the estimates go from one quarter to, to three quarters. But manufacturing is mainly in the hands of private uh, producers, and heck of a lot of that is foreign owned. So people look at the Chinese exports and they think as the the average chinese exports these these are exported by big chinese capitalists and big american and european capitalists who own these enterprises and who use china as a source of cheap 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 cheap, cheap labor that's what, what what has happened so industry has been to a huge extent privatized you need to look at the figures I've relied on, on books, some by bourgeois writers. Although the bourgeois writers are very reactionary, they are in favor of privatization, but nevertheless, they gave a fairly accurate picture of the privatization of this, in, this, this, this industry. And this is backed by Chinese writers who without any sense of shame say, China has deserted central planning, is never going to return to it, and China has, stopped being isolated and has joined the mainstream. Well, this mainstream is not traveling in the right direction of history. They are actually lagging, lagging behind. And I have no doubt in the end that socialist planning will win, how it will win, and what contours it will chart in the course of coming back to central planning. But the fact of the matter is that Chinese progress that has been in the market reforms is built during the days of central planning. Chinese industry was built, Morris Meisner and Will Hutton will give you the facts and figures. These are petty bourgeois and reactionary writers, they are not communist writers, but they nevertheless have to build say that China's industrial base was built during the period of central planning and during the period of Mao Zedong. China's economy at the time of liberation was smaller than that of Belgium. But by the time that Mao Zedong dies, China was the sixth largest industrial country. It was producing most sophisticated goods, fighter planes, airplanes. It had exploded the atom bomb. It exploded the hydrogen bomb and thus strengthened its its defenses. It had abolished illiteracy. It had abolished innumeracy. Women had been brought to participate in social production on an equal basis. It had nurseries and creches and kindergartens for schools and cheap dining facilities for, for people. Women don't get liberated by being made chief executives of Google or something like that. One woman can become a chief executive of Google but that does not make for the emancipation of women. To emancipate women they must be introduced in social production on an equal basis. Even in capitalist countries which have brought women a lot of benefits compared with what was there before capitalism. But nevertheless the woman continues to be chained to the nursery and and to 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 the kitchen. A woman who even goes to work has to come home and be mainly responsible for children I know there are some petty bourgeois households where they say, "I've done one nappy change; you must do another nappy change." But, but, but that does not make make for liberation. It makes for the distribution of misery. They shouldn't be done. They 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 should not be done on an individual basis. They should be done on a collective basis. Children are the common property and inheritance of humanity. Looking after children should be the job of society, as indeed. Something which is close to my heart, old looking people. after old people. <laughs> L- looking, <out> old <laughs> look, looking, out, looking after old people is the duty of humanity. They have contributed there during their working time to the development of society. Some of them. Some of them have, yes. <laughs> Some of them have. Most of them have, unless they've been deprived of the, that opportunity thanks to the ravages of the market. Most of them have to work even if they don't want to work because that's the only way they can make make a living. And although people will tell you, of course, there are people who are enjoying themselves on Social Security, Mind, mind you, anybody who has been on Social Security will know it's not a life of Riley. It's not something that you will welcome. It's not something that gives you a comfortable existence. Apart from the humiliation of having to appear before Social Security officers and justify that you're entitled to, you can be billionaires, and you can be deprived. You can actually be allowed to put your hand into the treasury money and take all kinds of contracts. You know, whether they're for supplying, you know, protective equipment or you know testing and tracing or whatever it is. Billions of people, billions of, sorry, uh, pounds have been stolen from the treasury thanks to the collaboration between imperialist politicians, the government, civil service, and of course, the private, private capitalists. But wrong social security amount for one week, you'll be prosecuted and you'll be hauled, hauled through the courts. You know, more money is lost people not claiming their rights through social security, then is lost through some fraudulent claims. I'm not saying that ordinary people are above that. It's a system of corruption. It's a system of, of looking after number one. So sometimes working people tempted to, to, to defraud as well. But these are not the majority. These are just a tiny, tiny minority. But capitalism comes down on them hard because he wants to make an example and saying, that's what these loafers and good for nothing do. Unless we are very strict, that's what everybody would be doing. I don't blame anybody wanting to do nothing and and live on nothing because that's what the ruling class does. They are the ones who are setting the example. As the old saying goes, fish rots from the head downwards. If the system at the top is corrupt, it percolates all the way through through to ordinary people. Ordinary people are not above sinning. Why should they be? It's an equal opportunity society. Any anybody who can get away with, with with it will will try to do it, but the system makes sure they are not the ones who get away with it. The ones who get away with are the are are the exploiters. Anyway, having achieved that, and at the same time as market reforms are being put in, the Chinese Communist Party under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping make an evaluation of the. Uh, the Cultural Revolution. And their basic uh, thrust and their basic conclusion is, these 10 years from 1966 to 1976 were a total disaster for China, during which China lost the tremendous opportunity to develop its industry and in productive forces and was in t- turmoil. Only when the Cultural Revolution was brought an end to and was the Chinese Society and economy was in safe hands of the likes of Deng Xiaoping. Did China begin to make progress? This is absolutely not true. There's a counter narrative which is supplied by people who are opposed to this this narrative. I give details of this in 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 my book, and one of the books that that I rely on in, in giving that narrative is by somebody called Gao Gao Mobo uh, you know, struggle for China's past, which gives. He was not particularly a supporter of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, but nevertheless gives a very truthful account of of what happened. And he shows what exactly was taking place at that time, that the measures that were instituted during the Cultural Revolution were basically very good. But of course, Cultural Revolution was something which happened on a vast scale. Sometimes excesses were committed, and they were all committed in the name of Mao Zedong. Mao wasn't their everywhere controlling thing. They even came up with the idea, nobody should get higher wages than anybody else. Well, this is crazy. This is contrary to Marxism, because under the conditions of the lower stage of uh, communism, which is socialism, people have to give, i.e. in their labor, as much as they're capable of and receive what they have put in, in terms of their their labor, you know? And if you say everybody receives equal, you're only going to harm production at that stage. Because in the lower stage of socialism, as Lenin said, everybody looks over his shoulders like a Shylock and see what the other person is getting. So if you actually make no distinction between those who are skilled, those who are unskilled, between those who work hard and those who don't, then you're simply going to lose all the possibility of advancing industry. So these excesses were committed, but these were minor. Basically what the Cultural Revolution did was to actually enthuse people to work for the common good, and that was not a bad thing. It's the equivalent of what happened in the Soviet Union through various emulation campaigns where workers emulated each other and increase production. The Strachanavite Strz- Strz- movement is a perfectly good exa- ex- example of that. So the Chinese also did that. And what the market did, of course, in the end, was brought in its trail, corruption. The Chinese are grappling with corruption. I have gone several times to China, invited by the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. I have never felt it my job to actually say whatever the reformists wanted to say. You know, and one Australian communist came to me and said, you're amazing. You come to China and you say that market is the chief culprit and not not corruption. So I said, comrade, the Chinese Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party through the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences have paid for my return fares. They put me in a five star hotel. They feed me six times a day till I'm sick with food,
0: <laughs>
1: right? They treat me very well, they treat me with respect. The minimum I owe to them is to tell them the truth. If they don't like it, they don't have to invite me. You know, I don't come here to eat Chinese meals. Next to my house in Acton is a lovely Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and I recommend it to an, an, an anybody, it's the best Chinese cuisine you can get, get, get in Britain, right? Okay. Of course it costs some money, but every now and then one can afford, afford, to, afford to go there. I don't go there to, 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 to eat Chinese meals. I don't go there to be applauded. I don't get there, go there to get a badge of honor. I simply go there because it's my communist duty to go and give my views, and I give my views. And I say, comrade, corruption is a symptom, it's symptomatic of the market. There's corruption in every capitalist country. Britain would like, the, the British politicians like to say there's corruption in India, there's corruption, corruption in Uranda Burundi, Uganda, and all the rest of it. But they say, no, never any corruption everywhere. Of course, there's not corruption at the lower level. If you want to get a passport, you don't have to corrupt anybody to get a passport. You know, but at the higher level, nothing can be done without corruption. There's huge amount of corruption. Mrs. Thatcher's son became a businessman solely through corruption because he was the son of his, the prime minister. And he concluded this most scandalous deal, the al Jamama deal with the Saudi government. Saudi um, princelings made a lot of money out of that through corruption. And so did Mark uh, 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 Thatcher. You know, he traveled in private planes with a private chef. You know, he's a he's a grocer's daughter's son. You know, how do you get a private plane? How do you get a, pri- a private chef of your own? That's how cap- cap- capitalism works. And the, so that I said, corruption is symptomatic. It's not the main thing. It has brought unemployment. It has brought exploitation of labour power. You know, labor power has been turned into a, commo- into, into, into a commodity because, because the Chinese society does not produce for need, if you like. There's a large section, uh, sector of Chinese industry which is state owned, but even that sector works on the basis of the market, on the basis of profitability. If a large state sector does not make money, it will then be obliged to face bank- bankruptcy. As any uh, pri- pri- private enterprise, So they have uh, through the reforms, when the commune system was dismantled, because the communes rent uh, 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 looked after education, health and clinics, etc, all those went by the wayside. And the Chinese were well known for curing diseases. Life expectancy from 35 to 65 does not increase just because Mao Zedong said we want longer lives, you know. You have to create the economic basis for it. You know, people will tell you that that, that, that this life expectancy increased in China. But most of the life expectancy increased between 1949 and 78. Since then it has also increased by, by 10 years. But during those years, it increased by over 30 years. This is when China started from a very low base of economic economic development. And they did that because they put into place measures which really matter to people. I don't measure people's prosperity by the GDP. GDP doesn't feed anybody. Because GDP includes the of the very rich and income of the very poor, and you average it. And you say, well, this is what every citizen gets. But the average citizen does not get that. Some get much more than others. And what mattered was, how many hospitals have you got? How many schools have you got? How many kindergartens and nurseries have you got? How many cheap dining rooms have you got? This is what made people's lives better. In the countryside, for the first time, these facilities were made available to the people, not just in towns but in the in the countryside. And when the central planning was in place and the, the enterprises in the towns, they ran their own schools. Millions of children were educated and funded by the uh, uh, state-owned enterprises. Millions of children went to school through them. Millions of kids went to hospitals that were run by state-owned and, and, and enterprises. When you retired, and you retired much earlier than you do these days, you got pension, your kids were looked after, everything was there. Even bourgeois writers say Chinese workers were a pampered class in, in China. And with the privatization beginning and large state and uh, and large large number of state enterprises being privatized all that disappeared something like 30 to 40 million workers lost their job, jobs within a matter of few years housing used to be made available through the uh, state owned enterprises that became privatized so housing in china was privatized in 1995 for the first time the Chinese no longer got accommodation through their employers. They got accommodation through the market, if you like. The Chinese language apparently had no word for mortgage, you know, because they didn't need a mortgage either in pre-liberation China or in post liberation China. So for the first time, mortgages came and that became the basis for the huge development of market in real estate, the construction industry. Construction industry it becomes so important that today it accounts for something like a third of the economy of China, third of the GDP of China. The richest billionaires have made their money through the construction industry. Apart from technology, the construction industry have produced the largest number of, number of, number of billionaires. And, of course, these billionaires run thousands of huge projects all over over China. They're not socialist enterprises. And they build for the market. And, of course, the market sometimes tells them, you built a lot more than you can sell. And they go bankrupt. Now, even the person who cursorily looks at the financial press would know the story of Evergrande, the largest Chinese construction company and the most indebted construction company in the world, it has gone down with 300 billion that it owed to local investors and foreigners. The locals are going to be protected somewhat. People have paid money to buy houses up front and these flats have not, have not been, been built and somehow the Chinese government will come to probably give them some assistance. The foreign investors will burn their fingers and much to be applauded that is. (laughs) China has, it has to be said to the credit of the Chinese Communist Party and government, it has operated the market very successfully. As a result China has become the biggest exporter, the biggest manufacturer, the biggest trade tra- 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 trading go- go- government in the world, it has done a lot, 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 lot of things, um, which, which of course, in a market economy, are to its to its credit, but all the same. First of all, it has been built on the basis of what was there before 1978, and secondly. It has been built because once China went down the road of marketization, and once China had joined the World Trade Organization, it had to operate by the market rules. And Chinese labor became so cheap that every imperialist company that could did invest in China. So huge amount of production that you credit to reforms is basically foreign firms coming and manufacturing in China. About half of Chinese exports are accounted for by foreign companies, foreign enterprises, and even a high percentage where they are technologically more sophisticated. China has become a market economy and it has become integrated into the world market. With all the consequences it carries, not only does it produce from time to time crisis of overproduction, which China has experienced, um, um, whether you not, not, noticed or not. In the aftermath of the 2007-2008 crisis, when the export markets drive, because China's economy is very exp- export driven, exports count account for 75 exports and imports account for 75% of Chinese GDP. When the markets dried, overnight tens of thousands of factories were closed and about 30 to 40 million workers lost, lost, lost their jobs overnight. So that is what the market does. And of course, on top of that, because China has been relying to a great extent on foreign technology the imperialists are able to actually try and put pressure on china in various ways by withholding technological know-how for example they are now increasingly refusing to sell chips to china chips are the soul of modern industry more than that the machines that manufacture chips are even more important and only america and holland have got control over this, this, this machinery. China's are trying belatedly to get ahead of that, but it t- takes time to make up. Had China stuck to central planning and relied on its own innovations at it date up to seven, 1978, it would not be in the position of being beholden to imperialism for technology or for exports. Of course, socialist countries trade with other countries. No country has got everything that it needs, so it's got to import things but other countries also need things which socialist countries have and which they cannot produce themselves so there will be some trade any anyway but to rely overwhelmingly on foreign trade is not necessarily the best way to 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 produce and that's really what what what, what has happened in china along with that of course about with the marketization of the economy and all the ills it brings with it corruption, prostitution, gambling, uh, uh, and, 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 and of course, uh, 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 market, market frauds. It has brought an, an ideology, an ideology which is of a bourgeois nature. And increasingly, there is a rich class of people in China who actually want to get rid of any kind of socialist element in China, Chinese economy, and they're press, pressing for that. They tried their hand forcibly in in 1989, but they burnt their fingers. So they're very careful, they won't do it very quickly. But all the same, there is this constant struggle between the immovable object of the Communist Party of China and the irresistible movement of the market. One or the other must give way. Unless the Chinese Communist Party can push back against the marketization of the economy, the market in the end will have its say. I continue to hope that it won't. I continue to hope that somehow the Chinese will get get rid of uh, uh, these big capitalists. But, you know, like Xi Jinping is trying his best. But he's been dealt a very bad card. He comes 40 years after the reforms and the reforms are so embedded in china there are so many rich capitalists in china and the petty bourgeois who do rather well under the system that it's very difficult to roll back the market and they are not by themselves they have the sport of imperialism as Stalin said comrades the boundaries of class struggle are not delimited by the frontiers of the soviet union one end of these uh, 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 this class struggle is within the Soviet Union and one beyond its borders. Likewise in China, one end of the class struggle is within the People's Republic of China, another all across in the, in the, in the, in the capitalist, capitalist world. And the Chinese Communist Party has to tread very, very carefully. If the gains of the Chinese Revolution are not to be done away with, it must push back against the market reforms. Markets are no future, either for China, anymore they were for the Soviet Union, and they are no future for the rest of the the humanity. Along with that, of course, market reforms, Deng Xiaoping and Company propagated the theory. You know, this is an era of peace and prosperity and cooperation. This is, and, de- and, and development. These are the trends of our time, and of course they did their best to, to propagate it till it became clear that it wasn't quite working, work, working like that. You know, during the Yugoslav war, the Chinese embassy was bombed by the Americans. There was no need to bomb the Chinese embassy. The Americans can pinpoint where is the Chinese embassy. But this was a warning to China. Don't transport Yugoslav resistance. You know, otherwise something terrible will, will, will happen. There have been incidents of plane crashes off the coast of Hainan. Now Chinese have been learning, but all the same they are faced with a monster, US imperialism and other imperialist countries that follow its its lead. China has to struggle against, against, against all that. It's not an era of peace and prosperity, it's an era of imperialism. imperialism. imperialism seeks domination, not freedom. It doesn't say, let's all develop together, we're all brothers. There's no shortage of technology. There's no shortage of human resources. If everybody was joined together, this world could be made heaven on earth within a period of 10 years. But imperialism would rather spend its resources destroying than on building. What do the American workers get from destroying Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Vietnam, Korea, or anywhere? The American corporations and especially armament manufacturers and oil companies make a lot of money, but American taxpayer pays for these wars. And in the process, they of course militarized their own societies. Have you seen the picture of a policeman in a city in the United States of America? He could well have been an occupier from America in Baghdad. You know, they go in armored vehicles. They're armed to the teeth. And the average American does not feel safe in his house. They're crazy. They literally are crazy. Everybody's got assault weapons. They don't know when somebody's going to knock at the door, right? Why should it be in a civilized society, the most technologically advanced country, that you cannot sleep peacefully in your own house because you constantly expect a knock knock at the door? So you open the door and it turns out it's not even a robber, it's a robber in a policeman's uniform. He shoots you dead and what is his excuse? Well, I thought he he raised his hand. Well, how do you open a door without raising your hand? You know, and they shoot people dead. Sometimes they have the wrong color of skin. Sometimes they look poor. Or whatever the case may be, these shootings don't place, take place in posh areas where the rich live. It's always the urban centers where poor, poor people live. Whatever the color of their skin, they are treated awfully badly. As a result of these wars, I mean, Americans have killed upwards, and the estimates vary from 1 million to 3 million in Iraq. They lost what 7,000 you know, soldiers, and probably an equal number of people who are not soldiers are in uh, uh, civilian, civilian uniforms. But that's nothing compared with the price that the Iraqis have paid. But all the same, they come home, and there are hundreds of thousands of them who are actually hospitalized because they've lost their bearings. They actually cannot think think straight. They've gone mentally loopy. Some can't even get any places in hospitals because they're poor. You know, it's the poor people who are uh, enlisted to work in the army. Ever since they abolished after the Vietnam War conscription, it's the poor people who have no jobs, who have no alternative. The army, of course, lured them by saying, you will have this that, and the other as, wind up? Yeah, but you'll have this that, and the other for, for your um, uh, pension, and of course, you'll get to see foreign countries. Well, it's not, it's not tourism on the cheap. It is tourism for you to lay down, down your life. So I've been told by the chairman that I must wind up, and I will. Um, so comrades, uh, these, 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 these were my thoughts. And, but don't get the impression from that, that I'm anti-China, or that I'm anti-Chinese government. I hope against hope that the Chinese government will survive. I hope against hope that China will return properly to central planning and become a beacon to the world, as the old Soviet Union was, as China was before reforms Made their way into 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 Chinese society. A lot of people have accused me of having sold to the reform reformers because I don't condemn everything about the present government. A lot of people have accused me of 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 being being a Maoist because I support central planning. And a lot of people accuse me for no other reason that they got nothing better to do. <laughs> this this will carry on. It's not something that has ever bothered me. I put forward my views and try to substantiate my views and any opinion that is based on scientific research, I I welcome. But as Mark said, as as to the prejudices of the so-called mankind, I've never paid any attention before and I won't pay any attention now. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for your concise but excellent contribution. <laughs> that was fantastic. really taught a force. Oh, 40 people were watching the stream. Well, well done, thank you. Oh,
1: really?
0: Wonderful. 40. 22. Well, thank you, all of you, for tuning in. There's not quite a lot. There'll, there'll be lots. You don't see them all at the same time. Um, thank you very much for that fantastic introduction. Look, I want to take this opportunity to plug the book. If you haven't um, been able to get a, a whole flavour of what Rapal was saying, it's because there's really... You know, there's a lot of information in here, and this compiles the latest economic statistics, but it also compiles the whole of the really the history of China in a modern period, from the point of benighted ignorance from the 150 years of colonial humiliation, um, through the liberation struggle, through then the socialist construction of China, to the modern day, and an objective economic analysis of what's happening in China now. So you you, you, you must get hold of it, you must read it, you must assimilate it. We in the CPGBML are fierce defenders of Marxism, of Marxist economics, of saying that really socialism is real and possible. Not socialism in the sense that everyone says they are a socialist, that, every, that Tony Blair was a socialist because he was in the Labour Party. Socialism in the sense that we believe in a planned economy, we believe that a better society is possible, and we defend that Marxian economics, but we are great defenders of China. And we're going to have a QA and a session, which we're not going to televise and stream live. But i'm going to start and abuse my position as chair by asking the first question and i'm going to i'm going to stream that because I, you know um a of mine, josh has given me quite a number of videos recently um, in which people are trying to grapple with this concept that china is a socialist country has had a socialist revolution has a socialist government has a communist government but obviously it has it has billionaires it has a lot of um capitalist economy it has the market forces present and and so what do we make of it and really a, a, an objective analysis of that as you see is not a straightforward thing to make but there are people who go further and they try and apply Lenin's thesis of imperialism to China and those are prominent people some of them including for example the Greek Communist Party the KKE which is the, perhaps the largest communist party currently existing in Europe so these are real um, trends and after them a huge number of, kind of, kind of socialist YouTubers or communist YouTubers make videos and he's shared some of those with me essentially purporting and trying to show that China, particularly, as people know about the Belt and Road Initiative, its network of economic relations that become increasingly important for many countries around the world. Does this rep- represent China not only as a capitalist country, but an imperialist country? And that kind of chimes in with some of the old propaganda we used to hear about China and Soviet Union during the early period of their, of their differences. Really as we've seen due to Khrushchevite revisionism, but during the Sino-Soviet split, China had an unfortunate habit of characterising the Soviet Union as imperialist, though economically at that point it really was socialist, even though it was going in a reformist direction. So this question of is China imperialist I find interesting. And I wonder whether you'd just give us a concise answer about that before I end the live stream and we can get on with some some good fun locally.
1: China is not an imperialist country, and for not for saying that, I've been condemned by people who call themselves Maoists and Hojais but they'd like to say China is an imperialist country. Um, um, Of course, uh, there are certain superficial similarities between imperialist economies and China's economy. One is monopolization. There are a lot of large Chinese companies, some state-owned and some privately owned. Uh, There's no question that China has got a big trade. Uh, As Ranjit has mentioned, there is is the Belt and Road Initiative. To me, the Belt and Road Initiative is, far from being an example of imperialism, is one of the best things that the Chinese Communist Party has done. It is connecting together by rail, road, and by sea, about 90 countries and bringing development to them, uh, there are a lot of people who talk rubbish and say China is there only to get uh, mineral resources. That the fact of the matter is, more imperialist capital is invested in extraction industries than, than, than is China's. Secondly, well if China is developing these countries, is building hospitals, you know, there is something to show for China, build a hospital. Builds a school, builds roads, builds clinics and all sorts of de- develop- developmental projects. Helps them set up in, in- industries as well. Well, look, China is not some Oxfam charity. It's not, and even Oxfam makes a lot of money, right? <laughs> you know, most of, most of the money collected goes to its administration. And if you're a director of, of Oxfam, you get fairly good, good remuneration for that but China obviously has to have some compensation, and China does get resources. But China does not get these resources in the same exploitative manner as imperialist companies do, who simply go in for looting. You know, they don't go for trade. They go for, 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 for looting. And, uh, and sometimes they have no economic resources, and China helps them. Ethiopia is a perfectly good example. Ethiopia is a country of anywhere between 90 to 100 million people. It literally has no resources that China could rely upon. China has poured in a huge amount of money to help Ethiopia develop. Even a friend of mine who was very critical of China, I've discussed with him and he's convinced now that China has has helped. Not because China was expecting any minerals from Ethiopia, because Ethiopia hasn't got any minerals. But it has helped Ethiopia to actually have a tremendous amount of economic development. It's done it the same with other countries. It's done it with Latin America. It gives them a breathing space. As an Angolan minister said, what China has given us is the self-respect. You know, Before that, imperialists used to come and tell us, do this, do that. Chinese don't do that. Chinese talk to us. As, as, as equals. Of course, if Angola sells oil, and Ch- China has put in huge amounts of capital to help Angola both develop its oil industry as well as other in, infrastructure, as indeed it has done in Nigeria, as it has done in, 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 in a number of places. Latin America, Iran, Venezuela. Iran and Venezuela would find it very difficult to exist in the case of Iran, without uh, principally Chinese help and they trade with them, and secondly Russia and the same goes, goes for Venezuela. Instead of calling them imperialists, they should be told, they should be characterized people who are blocking imperialism's brigandage who are, if not completely eliminating it, they're retarding imperialism's brigandage. That's why China And to a certain extent, Russia, which is not to be compared with China, they are different economies. But they have become a sore, a real sore to imperialism. That's why imperialist countries are doing their best every day. Russia must stop further aggression. Well, if there's been no aggression before, how can there be further aggression? Now, either I don't understand English, or they don't know their own mother tongue. Then they talk of China being aggressive. Where is China aggressive? China is aggressive on Taiwan. China wants to reclaim its own province, of which she was denuded, in that Sino-Japanese war. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.